Today in Science from Wired. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. You know, some things take a lot of work, like sending little robots to far off distant planets. And just as that's challenging, so too is running a successful e-commerce business, especially when there's so much to do. So I want to introduce you all to ShipStation. Now, I love using ShipStation because of its easy-to-use dashboard, which makes managing orders and printing labels a breeze and super smooth. Oh, and the customer service is just out of this world. It's exactly what you need to help grow your business. Sign up for your free 60-day trial at ShipStation.com slash technews. That's ShipStation.com slash technews. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today in Science from Wired. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from TD Ameritrade. Meet their newest trading platform, Think or Swim Web. It has all the essential tools and strategies in a streamlined interface. No download necessary. Think or Swim Web. Trading streamlined. Visit tdameritrade.com slash thinkorswimweb to get started. A unique alliance could help warn us of toxic algae. In Washington state, scientists, coastal communities, and state agencies are banding together to manage the growing threat of harmful algal blooms. By Sarah Harrison. In 1991, Frank Cox, who's a biotoxin coordinator for the Washington State Department of Health, went digging for razor clams. And when he was done, he packed up his haul and sent it to a state lab to look for paralytic shellfish poisoning. That's the only marine toxin that's known to appear in that part of the coast. The lab ground up the shellfish and mixed the tissue with solvents. Then they injected the shellfish slurry into mice. And I know it sounds totally horrific, but I guess it's a pretty common technique, at the time at least. So they inject these mice, and the mice did something weird. Instead of gasping for breath or dying, which are standard symptoms of paralytic shellfish poisoning, the mice started scratching behind their ears. Uh, okay. Well, I guess this symptom, even though it seems harmless, revealed a disturbing new toxic threat. Demoic acid had arrived on the West Coast. Bum, bum, ba. Seriously, though, demoic acid is serious. It's a deadly, naturally occurring neurotoxin produced by Pseudonychia, which is a genus of planktonic diatom, or single-celled algae. And when that algae is eaten by other marine animals like mussels and clams and dungeness crab, the acid concentrates in their digestive tracts and internal organs. And when those tasty marine treats are ingested by humans, the domoic acid can make people sick. It causes headaches and stomach cramps, nausea and diarrhea. And in more severe cases, patients might also experience seizures or a coma or even short-term memory loss. And that's why the illness is also sometimes referred to as amnesic shellfish poisoning. And when the world first saw demoic acid poisoning in 1987, three people died. 
So when state officials saw what was going on in these mice in the lab in Washington, they quickly shut down the entire state's coastline. They put up electronic signs on the highway that warned visitors away from clamming. And the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife sent armed officers to patrol the beaches. Vera Trainer said the public didn't know what the heck was going on. Vera is an oceanographer at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or the NOAA, and she studies harmful algal blooms in the Pacific Northwest. She said that at the time, there was a huge amount of suspicion and anger from members of the coastal communities, even the indigenous tribes that rely on the shellfish harvest for food and income. And she said, people said, oh, the government is just saying this because they don't want us to have fun. They don't want us to collect what's due to us. But ever since then, these toxic algal blooms that create domoic acid have continually forced the state to close the beaches. A few times, once in 1998-99 and again in 2002-2003, they closed the beaches for the entire clamming season. Now, in a paper out this month in Frontiers in Climate, our friend Vera Trainer and her colleagues are finding that climate change could also be affecting the frequency and severity of these blooms. Of course it is. They've written that a heat wave that lasted from 2013 to 2015 has made the blooms even more common. But the paper also describes a solution. It's a unique partnership where scientists and the members of the community who actually live on the coast can contribute to monitoring and managing these now yearly toxic blooms. But Vera does say it's maybe not the perfect, wonderful answer that everyone wants. She acknowledges that scientists haven't figured out a way to end the blooms and that they may never go away. But she does say other types of progress have been made. Like she says, we are just getting much better at learning to live with these. Yes, we're finding them in more places. They're more intense. We need to control climate change. But in the meantime, we can work with people on the coast to develop these systems that are going to help us still gain access to safe shellfish. So let's talk about Pseudonychia. Pseudonychia are found in oceans all over the world. But the area around the West Coast, from Northern California all the way up to Washington, it's particularly primed to create blooms. See, the topography of the ocean floor and the coastline create what's called retentive zones, and these are areas where the water eddies and swirls, bringing up all kinds of phytoplankton and algae, including pseudonychia. And it swirls it all up to the surface where there's all the nutrients and sunlight they need to grow. And Trainer actually describes these as little mini-ocean crockpots. Mmm, delish. And thanks to that multi-year heat wave that started in 2013, many of these crockpots were seeded up and down the coast. And the warmer water provides the perfect environment for the algae to just take off. And because those eddies also keep the algae and its toxic byproducts from being washed away and diluted by the rest of the ocean, those crockpots can grow into much larger and much more harmful blooms. And like everything else seems to be going these days, Global warming is probably making the situation worse. As climate change raises the temperature of the oceans, toxic algae have been moving into new areas farther north. And as our hotter planet makes the weather phenomenon known as El Nino more common with its warm surface waters, scientists are expecting to see more frequent toxic blooms, too. Ryan McCabe is an oceanographer at the University of Washington, and Ryan says it's too soon to say for certain whether these crockpots are making blooms more frequent or more toxic, 
but he does say that as the oceans continue to warm, he expects it to happen more often. And that's what seems to be happening along the Washington coast, he says, where we've had our fair share of extremely toxic events during the last five years. This bloom is really messing with the local tribal communities who live there, too. Like the Quinault Indian Nation, the Quileute Nation, and the Macaw Tribe, they rely on fishing and shellfish harvests. The state's razor clam fishery alone can generate $1 million in revenue for these tribes. And the tourism that comes with clamming can earn another $28 million. And we can't forget that a lot of tribal members dig clams for their food, and they see it as an integral part of their heritage and culture. Now, representatives from both groups didn't respond to requests for comment. But the Quileute Nation's website is saying that tribal members can't just harvest clams and crabs anywhere. They only have treaties to do it on specific lands. The website says, unlike non-treaty fishers who can fish the entire Pacific coastline, the treaty tribes are place-based. They can only treaty fish within their designated areas. So we've got scientists from the NOAA, the University of Washington, and state agencies like the Department of Health and the Department of Fish and Wildlife, they've needed to know more about the toxin levels in the water. And the communities along the coast, they needed to have access to safe seafood. So, in 1999, they started working together, creating the Olympic Region Harmful Algal Blooms Partnership. And in this partnership, the scientists are actually training tribal members to take water samples and analyze them for these toxins. These tests immediately tell how high toxin levels are, instead of having to wait three or four days for the samples to be shipped to a lab in Seattle. So the fishers know whether it's safe to harvest seafood immediately, and it helps state officials keep an eye on toxin levels. And doing it this way helps avoid emergency beach closures, and also warns people when they start to become unsafe. So originally, this program was started under a federal grant with the NOAA, but today it's funded by a small state tax on fishing licenses. And each tribe and Indian nation that participates has its own technician. It's usually a member of the tribe who takes samples every week or every other week. They go out with their Niskin bottle, which can take water samples from specific depths, and with phytoplankton nets, and they just scoop up thousands of these single-celled algae from the beaches and out of the water near the shore, and they bring the samples back to labs set up nearby. Then they look at it all under a microscope. Anthony O'Dell is a research analyst at the University of Washington who trains these technicians to take and analyze the samples. And he says the difficult part is identifying the phytoplankton and identifying the dangerous ones. Because there are thousands of types of phytoplankton along the Washington coast, and most are harmless to humans. But there are two culprits the technicians are on the lookout for. Pseudonychia, of course and members of the genus Alexandrium, and that's the one that produces the toxin that causes paralytic shellfish poisoning. Now, the partnership doesn't have the tools to run analysis for other toxins, so they do have to send samples to the Washington State Department of Health for testing. But just seeing the algae doesn't tell them whether or not there's a toxic event underway. Sometimes those dangerous diatoms are present, but aren't creating any toxins that could affect seafood. So, if the technicians see a large enough number of toxic diatoms, they do an analysis called an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, or ELISA, and that will detect how much toxin is actually present. They report those numbers to researchers at the University of Washington, and that data gets combined with sampling information from researchers at NOAA and the university who collect algae farther out into the ocean. 
And then all of that gets combined with other data, too, like information about weather and ocean currents and winds and satellite imaging, because sometimes you can actually see the blooms from outer space. And all of this combined data is used to calculate what the risk of a toxic event might be. This information goes into a weekly bulletin that shows what the toxin levels are in a specific area, and they use a color coding system that's easy for fisheries managers to read. McCabe helped create the bulletin, and he says it's a really hard problem because conditions are constantly changing. The species that do produce the toxins don't always produce the toxins. There's a lot of uncertainty in making these, so as we continue to do the bulletins and make the predictions, I think we're learning a lot. McCabe compares making these predictions to doing a jigsaw puzzle. Each bit of data about the ocean, temperatures, and algae is a puzzle piece that has to fit with the others to offer a complete picture. Mm, The partnership hasn't created enough bulletins yet to get meaningful data on how accurate their predictions are, but McCabe is keeping his own informal tally. With the right combination of data, he says we have been pretty spot on with our forecasts. Chris Funk is the director of the Climate Hazard Center at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he says that collaborations like these that incorporate data from many different disciplines and partners to give early warnings about climate dangers are going to be integral in responding to the effects of global warming. The hope is that we can be proactive as opposed to reactive, he says. We don't need to just stop and think that climate change is just going to happen to us. We can go out and try to understand what it's doing and mitigate those impacts. And our friend from earlier, Vera Trainer, is hopeful that this partnership could be a model for other communities fighting harmful algae. There's another group that's already forming in Alaska where a different type of toxic algae is creating more blooms. And she hasn't completely given up hope that scientists can find a way to get rid of the blooms entirely using natural mechanisms like planting seagrass that produces a bacteria that kills algae. But those solutions are a long way off. So in the meantime, Trainer says partnerships like this one can give communities a tool to handle one of the unexpected consequences of a warming planet. Curiosity in science is going to benefit us as a human race, she says. I think this is one of the really good news stories of that. Like what you learned? Subscribe everywhere you listen to podcasts and get more science news at wired.com science. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.